Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Can I really encourage you, if you haven't signed up for a tribe yet, to do so. Um, It's an incredible space for us to build community and for us to practice the way of Jesus. Even if you are really new to our community, if this is the first time that you're with us, even if you wouldn't say that you're a follower of Jesus, but you're still really intrigued about something like this, you would be so welcome to join a tribe. Uh, Some of our team are going to be over here at this connection point to help you connect with a tribe. So at the end of our gathering, please do head over there. Uh, Hello. Hello, good to see you all. Can I invite you to open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1? And while you turn there, I want to say a quick thank you. Uh, Our little girl arrived a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, Little Eliza is a dream. Emma is incredible. Women are amazing. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, We love this church. Uh, We can't wait to raise our daughter up in it, and I just want to say a quick thank you um, on behalf of Emma, Elle, and I, that we're just so grateful for so many of you who have shown us some love, support, been so generous, and who have prayed for the three of us. Thank you. We are loving life with Eliza in it, and we're just very, very grateful. Uh, God is good, and his love, it endures forever. Uh, Last week, we kicked off our autumn teaching series in the book of Colossians. And as we work our way through this series, can I emphasize what Andy shared last week with his encouragement, more like challenge, to bring an actual bookish Bible with you on Sundays. We long for our love, our reverence, our sense of wonder of this book to grow. And trust me, it will only grow whenever you become familiar with this text. The simple act of bringing your Bible along with you on Sundays, well, it speaks to your need for the Bible, your dependency upon it. It's like you can't leave the house without it. If you're here today and you don't own an actual bookish Bible, there are lots of black ones around your seat. Please do feel free to grab one with you. It is our gift to you. We want to prioritize the opening up of this text because as we do it, we open ourselves up to encountering Jesus through his word. Yes, on a Sunday, but also every single day. Our lives will be transformed as we meet Jesus through his scriptures. And so in that spirit, can I invite you to stand with me today as we read God's word together? Let's stand. This is the words of Paul to the church in Colossae. We're going to kick off from chapter 1, verse 15. Come, Holy Spirit. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. 
For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord, given to us so that we would know the love of the Father, would practice the way of the Son, and be filled over and over and over again by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. You can grab a seat. As Andy shared last week, This is a letter written to a young church in the city of Colossae, and it begins with what we kind of expect from Paul as he writes letters to churches. There are greetings, there are encouragements, there's charges, and there's prayers. But just as he's really getting going, Paul does something really unusual in verse 15 of chapter 1. It might not look like it in your Bible, but Paul writes a poem, a poem in three stanzas. I've heard it said that the universe isn't made up of atoms. It's actually made up of stories. In every moment of our lives, we're bombarded by countless narratives, stories that are trying to make sense of the world and our place in it. Each of these stories, they're grabbing at our attention. They're pulling us in and inviting us to act in their play. Yet so often in the swirling of these stories, it is the poets, it is the wordsmiths, who cut through the noise and help us see things clearly, revealing what is most true. There is a rich, prophetic, poetic tradition that runs right the way throughout the scriptures. And so here we find Paul, the poet, who really does know it, taking a leaf, thanks, taking a leaf out of the poem that we find on the very, that's my level of humor right now. Uh, Well, he takes a leaf, thanks, out of, a poem that we find on the very first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. We're so familiar with the creation narrative of Genesis 1 that we so often forget to remember that it wasn't the only ancient account of how the universe and everything in it came to be. Many cities, many cultures would have had their own creation stories, most notably the Babylonian account of creation, which was written on seven tablets, note that, And it was an account that was full of murder, rival gods kind of scrapping it out and forming the universe. And in an age of these contested creation stories, the poet of Genesis chapter 1 begins by saying, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. God, Elohim the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one and only true God, he alone is the true creator. That is what Genesis 1 is all about. All other creation stories, all other gods, all other myths, they're just cheap knockoffs. The poet of Genesis cheekily takes the form of other ancient creation myths and he reworks them, he remixes them, helping us see the truth that only in Elohim does everything find its existence. And as Paul writes to this young church in Colossae, he knew that he needed to cut through some noise. He needed to tell the truth. And so he does the ancient thing, the prophetic thing. He does the poetic thing by writing to this church in a poem. Because he wants to say that there's actually one story that counts. There's one story that is lifted high above all other stories, even though your lives are dominated by another myth. And this story, this myth that dominated people's lives, it could be summed up in three words. Caesar is Lord. Last week, Andy highlighted that 
this city was under Roman imperial rule. And it was an empire that did all it could to herald its leader as the ruler of everything. Caesar was seen as the son of God, and his rule was propped up with this myth that the empire sold. It was called Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And through Pax Romana, Caesar was seen as being the bearer of peace, of security, of identity, and economic prosperity. If you lived in Colossae whenever Paul wrote this letter, things would have been tight. Resources would have been really, really scarce. But if you gave your allegiance, if you give your all, if you give your devotion to Caesar, you would be able to share in the empire's fruitfulness and in its peace, even though this peace came through unspeakable violence, oppression, and deep division between the rich and poor. But forget about all of that. You'd be able to share in some peace and have a comfortable life. But ultimately, you had to buy into this myth anyway because Pax Romana was an imposed peace because if you didn't give your allegiance to Caesar, it was seen as an act of treason and you would have been hung on a tree and crucified. This empire, it had the greatest advertising campaign of them all, because there were just images of Caesar everywhere that you would have looked. Across cities like Colossae, everywhere you turned, you would have seen the image of Caesar. In the town square, in the theaters, in temples, on the coins that you used, his image was inscribed on the jewelry that you wore, the utensils you used. His image was put onto the lamps that were in your home and the paintings that were on your wall. And not only that, but the rhythm of your life would have been shaped by the empire. There were so many feasts that were dedicated to Caesar. And the most important forming practice of that age was gathering around a table. Where in the Roman Empire, you would have only gathered with people who were exactly like you, people who made the same amount of money that you did. And as part of your meal, there would have been this moment whenever your cup would have been raised and you would have declared that Caesar is Lord. So strong was his domination of your imagination and your intentions that if you lived at this time, Caesar simply had all of your worship. Let me quote you some expressions that would have been used at the time to describe Caesar. Caesar is equal to the beginning of all things. He is equal to God. The emperor has restored order and is the beginning of life and vitality. The emperor has wiped away all of our sins and revived the ancient virtues. Caesar is savior. He has put an end to war and set all things in order. Caesar is God manifest. Does any of this sound familiar? For the church in Colossae, their lives would have been dominated by one illusion. Caesar is Lord and there is nothing you can do about it. That is the context of Colossae. Uh, for those hearing Paul's letter, their lives would have been steeped in this Caesar is Lord story. And that is why Paul wants to cut through the noise and write a poem. Because in it, he takes phrases and pieces of common culture and he reworks them, he remixes them to share a counter-testimony, an alternative story, a subversive gospel that our rightful king is alive and he is well, but his name is not Caesar, his name is Jesus. In Colossians chapter 1, we find Paul subverting every major claim of the empire, turning it upside down as he proclaims that Jesus is God manifest on earth. This is the true story Paul is saying as he declares who our true and rightful king is. Paul here is exposing the myth of Caesar. Caesar's just a bloke 
He's a powerful bloke, yes, but his reign is limited to the empire. But notice what Paul does in Colossians chapter 1 as he uses two words over and over and over again, the two words, all things. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then jump down to verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace on his blood shed on the cross. All of the fullness of God finds its home in Jesus, who reveals his power not through a show of strength, but by dying on a Roman imperial cross. And not even the force of death can hold him back. And so through his resurrection, Jesus is enthroned as supreme over everything. And the reigning, ruling image of Jesus is alive. But it's also at work through an alternative community who aren't buying what the empire is selling. The body of Jesus, they fight against inequality through loving kindness, sacrifice, and grace, joining together to share this good news that the forgiveness of sins, fruitfulness, security, peace, and the restoration of absolutely everything, it is found in Jesus. And this alternative community that Paul is writing to, they would have risked their lives Rejecting the Roman rhythm and following a new way, marked most by gathering around a diverse table in their home, eating together, worshipping together, sharing resources together with people that were so unlike them. And with the taste of bread still lingering in their mouths, they would have lifted cups of wine, no longer declaring that Caesar is Lord, but Jesus of Nazareth is. Here's the thing. We can look back from where we are at, the vantage point of 2022 with our modern thinking and all of that, that everybody back in the day, they're just like robots kind of following along with the empire, right? That those days are long gone. Caesar is dead, right? Not not really. Because there is an empire that dominates all of our lives. An empire that promises peace, security, identity, and prosperity for us all, an empire that ends up binding us right up. And for those who are caught in its grip, we need to hear the true story, once again, that Jesus is Lord. This empire that I'm going to talk about, more than any other force in the universe, it pushes Jesus out of the center of our lives all of the time. And so we need to talk about it. And I know some of you are probably freaking out, being like, oh, this boy's been up late with a baby. He's gone all conspiracy theorists on us. Don't worry. I'm not, right? Because the empire that I am talking about may be faceless, but it's not nameless. The emperor's name is Mammon. Mammon's a weird word, but it's a word that is used by Jesus in Matthew 26. After saying that we shouldn't store up treasure on earth, but in heaven, in an old school translation, Jesus says this. It's going to appear on your screen. Ye, 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 ye cannot, yes, thanks hip-hop fans, ye cannot serve God and mammon. In your Bibles, mammon is usually translated as money, but Jesus is speaking about something more than that, something more than your cash, your card, or your crypto. By using this word, Jesus is speaking of the love of money, the obsession with it, the worship of it. Andy Crouch, 
describes what Jesus is getting at here whenever he says these fairly punchy words. In speaking about the danger of earthly treasure, Jesus describes mammon as a rival to God, an alternative Lord. In using the name mammon, Jesus had in mind not just a concept, but a demonic power. Money for Jesus was not a neutral tool that someone could master, sorry, that's is a neutral tool, but something that could master a person every bit as completely as the true God. Mammon is not simply money, but the anti-God impetus that finds its power in money. Jesus says that it is impossible to serve both God and money. There's only one space that can be reserved for the boss of your life. The question is, who is it going to be? Is it going to be Jesus or is it going to be Mammon? Just like Caesar promised peace, security, identity, and prosperity, if you fell in line with the way of the empire, well, the empire of Mammon, which is everywhere, by the way, it has got the best advertising campaign. It promises us the same If you center your life on money, on the making of money, the keeping of money, the spending of money, well, the empire of mammon will supposedly reward you with peace and security, a sense of identity and prosperity. Well, what I'm talking about here is making money an idol. And Tim Keller describes an idol like this. It is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Keller goes on to say this, idolatry makes us servants of money just as we serve earthly kings, so we sell our souls to idols because we look to them for a sense of significance and so we then learn to love them and we also look to them for security, therefore we trust them and so we have to obey them with our whole lives. With the weight of our love and our trust, we go all in and we depend entirely on the one that we serve. And so if we choose, serve, choose to serve money over Jesus, the making, the keeping, and the spending of money becomes the dominant aspect of our lives. It clouds all of our decision-making. It defines our focus. It's the thing that we daydream about and the thing that gives us nightmares. It is the thing that defines us and masters us and ultimately does become us. And I know this to be true. I feel the temptation all the time to make money the boss of my life. I stress over it. I want more of it. I want to look to it to give me a sense of being on an even keel. Whenever I think more about paying for things rather than praying about things, or whenever my imaginary Amazon wish list just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing, I find myself so often pushing Jesus out of the center and substituting him with the worship of money. Living under the rule of money makes itself known as we try to keep up with the Joneses. Whoever the heck the Joneses are, can we just find them and get rid of them for a moment? Is that all right? (laughs) I'm only joking. Through advertising, through social media, and those people that we're connected to in real life, the Joneses in our heads, we have this vision of the good life, the successful life, a life that him and her are living. And so we sell our souls We empty our bank accounts to pay for the stuff and the experiences that allow us to prove to the world or our phone worlds that we are able to keep up with everybody else. Whether it's in being just super tight or scrapping for that promotion to get more money, spending way too long in the crypto game. I never thought I would ever say that in church. Uh, Spending money uh, that we just don't have on credit cards screwing people over, caring only about the prosperity of our family and not other families who live close by, 
constantly fretting about our bank balances, burning ourselves out because we are overworking. The more time that we spend in the world that money makes, the more that we are conformed to its image. Here's the thing. We are all at risk of centering our lives on money more than Jesus. It'll just play itself out differently for each of us. But the love of money, it it runs really deep. Quite an intimate part of our souls. But I just want to say this. It's really easy to deny this love of money because I reckon greed is the hardest of sins to self-identify. We can think, this talk isn't for me. I want to encourage you just to listen in for a little bit longer. Whenever we center our lives on the possession of money, it'll only end up possessing us, all of us. Let me put it as plainly as I can. Living for money, it is anti-Christ. Here's what I've been saying. Just like the Colossians, everything around us is immersed in the empire. For them, the empire was ruled by Caesar. But for us, mammon wants money to rule over our lives. And so the question is, what does it look like for us as the church to live in the way of the kingdom and not the way of the empire? How can we live with Jesus at the center of our lives once again? Well, it comes down to practice, the practice of generosity. Us going in the opposite direction of what is normal by living radically generous lives. But that can only happen by us becoming a people that are formed by an alternative story. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God story, the gospel that we read in Colossians chapter 1. Let me talk about that for a moment. In Matthew 13, Jesus teaches his disciples a parable where a farmer is going out to sow his seed in a field. But along the way, some of the seed, it falls out and lands on different places along the way. There's some rocky ground, there's some good soil, but it also falls amongst some thorns. As the seed falls among thorns, it grows a little, but then it gets choked up. And Jesus goes on to describe what's happening here by saying this from Matthew 13. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, which is the word of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. But the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word by making it unfruitful. We need to pay really close attention to a phrase that I had never noticed Jesus say before until a couple of weeks ago, and it has wrecked me, the deceitfulness of wealth. Because for somebody like me, wealth equals success. It leads me into the good life. But Jesus says really plainly here, as he does, Jesus talking about money, my goodness. He he says that wealth, it is deceitful. It deceives you. It may promise you the world. It may promise you everything you desire, but it will leave you disappointed, empty, and exhausted. And it just never stops. The chasing after of wealth, it costs us our soul. Imagine hearing of a dodgy businessman who's messed people around and he comes to you and you know of his reputation, but he makes you a proposition. I want you to invest in my business, he says. You ask him, well, how much will that be? And he says, well, it'll be all of your soul, all of your money, all of your time, all of your attention and all of your focus. And you think to yourself, sounds like a great idea. I am all in. That will never happen. Because you want to invest all of yourself in someone that is faithful, someone that is trustworthy, and someone that is worth it. And the only person that fits that bill is Jesus. 
idols they take. They deceive us. They rob us and they leave us feeling empty. But Jesus, he is steadfast. He is secure. He is forever faithful. You can trust him with everything. And only Jesus is worthy of all of your one wild and precious lives. Because as Paul writes to the church in Colossae, in him, all things hold together. Everything is held together by Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constantly and consistently good. Friends, there is no recession whenever it comes to the kingdom of God. The authority of Christ never inflates or deflates. He will never change. God is gracious and kind from the beginning, from the opening poem of this book. We see that he is a God who blesses us and blesses us with abundance. Only in Jesus do we find an inheritance that you simply can't buy with money. Life everlasting. Peace in our personhood. Freedom from the past. Hope for the future. And intimacy with the one who holds it all together. Paul speaks to this inheritance whenever he says this of himself in 2 Corinthians 6, that he is as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. In the economy of the kingdom of Jesus, you can lose all of your cash, all of your possession, you don't have a scrap to your name, and yet you can say of yourself, I still possess everything. I possess all things. Truly, everything that you desire, everything that you are chasing after, everything that you're emptying your bank balance for is found in the inheritance of the Jesus is Lord story. Friends, I come to you today with a counter testimony. I know that this is a wee bit heavy, right? But it's so important. If we want to be the kind of community that places Jesus at the center, we need to talk about the thing that holds us back from that life happening. So I come to you with a counter-testimony today, an alternative vision of things. Jesus, he laid aside the treasures of heaven so that he could make you his treasure. Through his death and resurrection, you are now the treasure of God. You are his treasured people. And whenever we learn to treasure him above anything else, we will enter into the fullness of our peace, our security, our identity, and our prosperity. That is good news. A gospel that invites us, as Hebrews 13 says, to keep our lives free from the love of money and be content with what we have. And why? Because God has said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Everything that we want, everything that we desire is found in the God of all creation speaking over our lives and with you and for you. I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And stirred by this gospel, as God's new humanity, as his kingdom people, we get to subvert the empire by practicing radical generosity. And we do this by living the example of Christ, rejecting our riches, denying ourselves, coming to see that our lives are not for us alone and we are to pour ourselves out for others, especially the poor. Whenever we make money our idol, it causes us to do two things. Firstly, it causes us to hunker right the way down. We narrow ourselves and we narrow our lives simply down to us, our family, and our people, close friends, close family. But it also invites us just to hoard, we just hoard stuff to try to make our lives more comfortable, easier the way that we want it. 
Listen, hunkering and hoarding, it is the least Christ-like posture possible. The Christ-like posture, it looks way more like this, with hearts that are open to the world and hands that are ready to serve as we give our lives away to others. This is the cruciform life, the life that we see as the King of Kings hangs on that tree. In our generosity, and you've heard us say this so many times, it is never generosity until it costs. It's never generosity until it's sacrificial, right? Our generosity, it is a test of our trust in God. Those who give and give abundantly, joyfully, sacrificially, they know that they can do so because they're relying on Jesus for everything. It is the generous who get the gospel. And I love that we're part of a community that gets this. So many of you are arranging your lives in the direction of generosity. I love how generous we are. But I want to remind you that, yes, our generosity is a response to the gospel. Yes, it is how we bless people. But our generosity, it demonstrates our declaration that Jesus is the boss of our lives. His lordship of your life will be tested more than anything else by what you do with your money. That is the place of true worship. The more that you grasp the gospel, mammon will have no dominion over your life. Mammon will be dethroned and demoted and Jesus will be heralded to the place of ultimate worship. He will release you to live freely and lightly. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that we should just now kind of go to the latest or the closest ATM get all of our cash out and just make it rain everywhere, right? I'm not saying that. I'm also looking at some friends who work in finance. I'm not saying you should just go and quit your job, right? I'm also not saying that you should just forget about paying your bills, even though that would be wonderful if we could do that, right? Whenever it comes to our finances, we need to be really wise. We need to steward our finances well. We need to be diligent. We need to plan. We need to budget. And if you don't know how to budget, we've got a brilliant cap course that we'd love to connect you in with. This is really important for Emma and I as we consider what this looks like for our finances at home, for Emma and her business partner as they think about their physio practice. What does this look like for them to be diligent and wise with their finances? It's really, really important to us. I'm not just saying this morning, like, forget about money, right? But what I'm talking about is our priorities. What comes first? You can't serve both God and money. Who will be at the center of your life? Money is a necessity. We have to work with it. We have to live with it. But we just need to be devoted to Jesus more. We need to place the emphasis of our lives on Jesus. Remember, attention is the beginning of devotion. So let me ask you, who is setting the terms on how you behave? Who is the deciding factor in the decisions that you take, the plans that you set, the way that you go about your day, the way that you are arranging your life, is it Jesus or is it money? My hope, my prayer, is that today you would hear the true story of grace, the true gospel story. Only the love of Jesus offers you an identity, an inheritance that money simply cannot buy. And transformed by the grace of Jesus, we're invited to invest our lives in blessing others through radical generosity. In an age that is surrounded by an empire that many of us fail to see, 
May we be the kind of people who arrange our lives by seeking first the kingdom of God above all else and living righteously. Because whenever we do that, the Lord will give us everything that we need. Before I finish, I want to say a couple of things and then we're going to worship. Because the truth is, is that we're all looking into what is going to likely be a pretty tough winter. See, the cost of living crisis, and there's a lot going on politically at the minute. There's quite a bit happening. And for some of you, you may be sitting here thinking it's really rich to hear a talk on thinking about money less and worshiping Jesus more whenever money is all that I can think about right now. It consumes me. I'm anxious whenever I look at my bills, whether I'm going to be able to make my next payment. I'm nervous about everything that is to come. As part of the team here, I want to be really clear, if that's you. If you're struggling right now, or you're scared of what is to come, please come and speak to us. We really want to help. For real. We'd love for you to grab a conversation with us. I, for one, would love to speak about how things are going and to serve you, to help connect you with people that I know and organize, organizations that I care about, that they, I just know that they can serve you really, really well. I also want us to help you really practically, though, as well. Whenever I see the church that Jesus is the head of in, in my mind, I see a rich tapestry of love, a community that is tethered together, a community that supports one another, that shares resources, that sells their stuff, that gives their money away, that cancels each other's debts, that shares funds, a community that stands with one another through thick and thin. Let us be Jesus' church for you if you're looking into this winter and you're scared. All it begins with is a simple, quiet, safe, confidential conversation with us. Please do come and speak to me, Andy, Yvette, James, Lou, Chris, Lauren, Cherith. Come and speak to us. We would love to be able to help you. Now, for the rest of us, things will be tighter this winter. It's just going to happen, right? And we're going to have to cut back on a few things. But truthfully, living a simpler, less flashy life is no bad thing. Kind of lines up with the teachings of Jesus, doesn't it? For those of us who are going to be grand, it'll be tight, but we'll be grand. We will be tempted more than probably we've ever been before to live selfishly and to live greedily. And I use those words intentionally, by the way. We'll hear the news. And even though we're grand, it'll be so easy for us to make excuses, to hunker and to hoard, when in fact, this is the moment whenever we need to be more generous than ever before. Mammon is a really sneaky emperor, forcing us into its game. Live for yourself, do you. Forget about everybody else. Friends, this region, it is going to need the Jesus people this winter. People who are not bound up by the empire, but people who are free to give their lives away in generosity for the sake of the kingdom. This is not a moment for us to hunker down and to hoard, but a moment for us to open our hearts and our hands out like Jesus, displaying his love to those all around us. Let me finish with one last thing, and Hannah, Jamie, you guys can come on up. Because I know what some of you are thinking, if you've been really locked in. I see what you're doing, Steve. The kid's smart. 
just a couple of minutes ago, Andy was up talking about the building behind us that we're going to be moving into. And whenever churches move into buildings, then usually there comes a moment whenever we ask you to help financially. You know, giving campaign's going to be happening soon. Do a talk on generosity just to kind of get us started. Listen, I'm not that calculated. Like, I'm, I'm not that mega churchy. I'm just not. I'm absolutely not. I'm not saying this, like, true bill, it's, it's important for me to say this, I'm not saying any of what I've said because of a building campaign. Because the giving campaign will end in a couple of weeks' time, in a couple of months' time. I'm saying what I'm saying because of you and how you will choose to arrange the rest of your lives. In the second century, Ernest said this, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Whenever we place Jesus at the center of our lives, we come alive, fully alive. And through that, us living fully alive, Jesus is most glorified. Yet I know, and I know that you know, that whenever we place money at the center of who we are, life just feels a bit aimless. What we do is based on our whims, our tastes, well, they just change all the time. Apple releases products every single season. We want what they have. The economy is constantly in flux. And why am I just left so knackered in the thick of it all? Mammon wants you to live aimlessly so that you can keep buying what it's selling because it is the thing that is right in our face. Like a great advertising campaign, you simply cannot escape the empire. Friends, I want to leave you with the words of Paul. These are words that are full of direction, words that draw Jesus back to the throne room of our hearts. Do you not know, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Our prize? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. And he is the head of the church, reconciling all things to himself. Well, the things that are in heaven and on earth by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is our prize. Jesus is our treasure. And so church, may you receive the gospel today and may you learn to live an empire-subverting, generous, fully alive life. Mammon doesn't need to be the boss of your life anymore because the good news that cuts through the noise that sounds like a prophetic poem inviting you into a different story through which you come alive. And this story, it is summed up in three words. Jesus is Lord. 
If you're able, why don't you stand with me as we come to worship? As, as you stand, why don't you just close your eyes and just catch your breath for a minute just so that you're here and nowhere else. I'm aware that conversations on money, well, they're tough. That they're also quite intimate. And so I want to invite you just where you are right now with everybody's got their eyes closed. If what I've been saying today has hit home, and if you look into the deep parts of your life, and if you were honest, if you find yourself acknowledging that actually Jesus isn't really the Lord of my life, in fact, the chasing after, the keeping, and the spending of money is, I want to invite you to do kind of the opposite thing of hunkering down and hoarding. I want to invite you just to open your hands in front of you. Just in the posture of Jesus, I want to live in the opposite direction. I want to live more like you, but also I need you. I need your help. And if that is you, I want to invite you just to pray, just to begin to pray to the Lord. And you may want to just take a moment just to pray a simple prayer of confession, a prayer that may go something along the lines of, Jesus, I have made money the boss of my life. Just be honest. Pray it in your own words. I prioritize money over you. I care about money more than I care about you. Money has my heart. Whatever it might be, just just begin just to pray that. But I also want to invite you, after a prayer of confession, to receive the gospel and to pray a prayer of declaration, something along the lines of, but... Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Jesus, I want you to have the place of worship. Jesus, I want to invite you once again to be the boss of everything. Just in your own words, just pray that prayer. And in the next couple of minutes, I just want to invite you just to continue to have an intimate, quiet conversation with Jesus. And if you are responding to this today, can I just encourage you to ask the Lord a question? Uh, Oftentimes, whenever we ask God a question, he answers. And sometimes he answers in really surprising ways. And I would just invite you to ask this question, Lord, in light of the gospel, what would you have me do? And I want to ask you just to listen to what he says. As I was praying for you this morning, with a little one in my arm, pacing down my hall. I find myself just praying for you and I just have faith that God will place people's faces at the forefront of your mind. That names will just appear. You're like, well, I haven't thought about that person in a long time. That for those of you who own a business, 
that are struggling right now, that there will be solutions that will just begin to be unraveled in your mind that you never quite seen before. You'll just be able to see things from a fresh perspective. To those of you who own businesses, that the Lord may ask you to risk something for the sake of generosity and you're like, oh, flip, okay. Just listen out for those things. Lord, in light of the gospel, what would you have me do? And for the rest of us, I want to invite you just to sing this song. Use this song as your prayer, as your pledge of allegiance, as your declaration of worship that mammon, you're second, but Jesus, you're first. Jesus, you have it all. Jesus, you're my one thing. You are the boss of my life. Let's worship together.